0: The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, your word says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives you of all your iniquities. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. And who heals all your diseases. Lord, if you would give us benefits like these, we know that you would also not withhold from us Kindness and mercy as we open your word. So we ask that the same God who forgives our iniquities, heals our diseases, and crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies would also feed us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There was a country preacher in North Dakota who traveled around to various small communities, preaching in several different churches every Sunday. These communities were so small that they couldn't have their own churches and their own pastors. And so this one pastor would be, in a sense, the pastor of several churches in different communities. And he had a reputation. His reputation was that no matter what was going on, he was thankful for something. Well, one February Sunday, he was delayed from going from one of the churches to a different church because there was a terrible blizzard. and He was like 20 minutes late showing up to this next service. And everyone was sitting there waiting for him, expectantly wondering, how is he going to be thankful today? Well, he walked up on the platform behind the pulpit, and without any comment about being late, he bowed his head and he started to pray. And here's what he prayed. He said, Father, I thank you that every other day is not like today. There's some people who, no matter what is going on, they can find something to be thankful for. And this evening we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, where in spite of the fact that whatever's going on in Corinth is really messy, it's not something that we would naturally want to be thankful for. The Apostle Paul actually starts addressing the Corinthians by showing how grateful he is for the work of God's grace in them. And so if you have a Bible, let's read together. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 9. It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all, who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and Ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always for you for the grace of God which is which was given to you by Jesus Christ, that you were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're going to focus on verses 4 through 9 this evening, and we're going to do so under two main points. First, we're going to see Paul's gratitude expressed. We'll look at that in verse 4, and then in verses 5 through 9, We'll look at Paul's gratitude explained, where he actually highlights what it is he's thankful for. Let's begin, though, looking at Paul's gratitude expressed. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Jesus Christ. So so the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 1 are actually, not that they're unimportant, but they're, they're kind of business. They're Paul just saying, this is who I am. This is who I'm writing to or his introduction. But really, the, the body of his letter starts in verse 4. And the body of the letter starts with Paul expressing gratitude to God for the grace of God that he has given the Corinthian believers. And, and really, if as you look at Paul's letters, that's often how Paul starts his letters. Paul usually starts writing to individuals or writing to churches by in some way communicating to them, not only that he prays for them, but also that he's thankful for them. You see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, "First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in the whole world. Ephesians starts the same way, Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. The letter to to the Colossians, Colossians 1-3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whenever we pray for you. Paul usually starts his letters by expressing gratitude for the recipients of his letters. And, And in most cases, that makes sense. There's a lot going on in the church at Rome to be thankful for. There's a lot going on at the church at Ephesus to be thankful for. There's even things going on at Colossae to be thankful for. But we start 1 Corinthians and we go, hold on a 2nd You're actually thankful for something about the Corinthians? We know things in, in Corinth are not going well when Paul writes this letter. So Paul started the church at Corinth and then he left there and he went about 90 miles to Ephesus where he's laboring in Ephesus. And it's from Ephesus that he writes the book of 1 Corinthians. And while he's there, This lady named Chloe, more than likely a member of the church at Corinth, writes him a letter or sends some people um, and sends a delegation of people 90 miles to tell Paul. or I'm sorry, 360 miles, not 90 miles. That's how far we live from you. Um, It's 360 miles to Ephesus and says, here's all the problems going on. We also know that Paul's independently of that receiving other oral reports of problems at Corinth. We also know that the church at Corinth has sent letters to Paul, independent of both of those things, saying, here's the problems we have. Can you help us? Things are not going well at the church at Corinth. And so how in the world can Paul start his letter by saying, by the way, the first thing I want to tell you is not, here's all the things you're doing wrong. The first thing I want to tell you is, I thank God for you. That becomes even more confusing when you realize the kinds of things that Paul says he's thankful for are actually many of the things they're struggling with. Paul's thankful that God has given them utterance and wisdom and they lack no good gift. Paul's going to come later in the letter and he's going to correct their false understandings of wisdom. most of chapter one is Paul saying your understanding of wisdom, your expressions of wisdom absolutely wrong. He's going to rebuke their self-centered utterances of prophecy and tongues. so how in the world? Does he come to this group of people who are tripping in every way, who are abusing their spiritual gifts, who are prophesying and speaking in tongues in very self-centered, sinful ways? How in the world does he start a letter to this group of people and say, by the way, I'm thankful for you? Some people have some commentaries have surmised that Paul's actually flattering the Corinthians as a form of rebuke. By the way, I'm thankful for you guys being a hot mess. I don't think that's it at all. If you read through this section carefully, you notice Paul's not thanking God for the ways that the Corinthians are tripping. He's thankful, thanking God actually for the expressions of God's grace that he does see in spite of their tripping. That's important to notice because it shows us that Paul is so focused on the work of grace in the lives of God's people that even when it's as small as a pea, He sees it, he takes notice of it, and he even thanks God for it. There's enough work of grace in the lives of God's people that even before he starts correcting problems, he says, I'm just thankful for what I do see. Paul's actually exemplifying what he's going to tell the Ephesians later in Ephesians 5.20, where he says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in everything. For this is the will of God towards you in Christ Jesus. Psalm 92 verse 1 says, It's good. It's a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. This is actually, for me, as I work through this passage, this was an instructive rebuke in my life. Because here's what I do. being honest with you. Here's what I do. I look at the lives of God's people around me. And the first thing I think of more often than not is where do I see the grace of God? That's not normally my first reaction. I know at an intimate level the struggles and the sins and the problems of most of the people in my church. And you know what? When I think of people in my church, as I'm sure you do too, because our hearts are the same, some of the first things I think of are they're not as holy as they should be. They're not as devoted and committed to the church as they should be. They're not as hospitable as they should be. They don't love their husband like they should. They're kind of angry parents. And I could make a huge list of all of the sins and all of the failures and all of the problems and shortcomings of the the Christians around me. And guess what? Paul could too, but that's not the first thing he does. He knows those things are there, but in spite of that, what's he doing? He's choosing first to look for grace. He's choosing first to look at where is the work of God evident, and then I can be thankful. Paul's showing us that even when the work of God is only present in seed form, even when it's stifled and suppressed by sin, in all of God's people there is always enough evidence of grace that he has something to be thankful for. I think we can actually apply that in our own lives. So when I when God was like rebuking me in verse four, as I worked on this, I took most of an afternoon and I took our church directory and I went through every name of everyone that goes to our church. And if they're a believer, I started forcing my mind to intentionally, purposefully think through where do I see grace? Where do I see the work of God, the spirit of God? Where can I identify? There's. Grace active in the life of this person. I think one of the the implications of all of this is that we see whatever we look for. Whatever you're looking for, you will find. Because God's people are, we're actually Romans 7 Christians, aren't we? We have the spirit of God in us. We have God working in us. We have grace operative in our hearts. But we also have a remaining flesh. And we say with Paul, a wretched man that I am. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, these are the things I find myself doing. That's where we live. And if we look for sin in the lives of God's people, if we look for problems in the lives of God's people, we'll find it. But if we look for grace, if we look for the work of God in the lives of God's people, we will also find it. The second thing Paul does in this section, he starts by expressing gratitude, but then he explains the gratitude. And so that brings us to our second point, Paul's gratitude explained. So as you look at verses 4 through 8, you'll notice this is actually one really long sentence. And it's a sentence that in a number of places is hard to identify how do the parts fit together. We're not actually going to break down all the parts since it's a longer section. But the big idea is that Paul is not merely expressing gratitude for the Corinthians. He is doing that. But more specifically, He's expressing gratitude for the work of God amongst the Corinthians for all the ways that God is working in and among them. And so what he does in the rest of verses four through eight or four through nine is he actually takes the the various areas where he sees the grace of God working and he breaks it down and he starts highlighting. Here's where I see the grace of God working. The first reason for Paul's gratitude is in verse four. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ. So the first reason that he's thankful there is he's thankful for the grace of God that was given to the Corinthians by Jesus Christ. Now, as you, as you think about that, you have to understand and think about who are these Corinthians? Who are these people that Paul is thankful for as a whole? The, the city of Corinth was one of the most pagan places you could imagine. They were one of the most idolatrous people you could imagine. They were some of the most fleshly people you could imagine. So so what happened was there were actually two Corinths in history. There was an original Corinth, and that got decimated, and then they realized actually that was probably a bad idea. We should rebuild Corinth because of the way it's situated between these two seas. And so they rebuilt Corinth, and when they did, what that did is It brought people from all over the world to this place very quickly, and it soon became this massive business hub where there's commerce, there's religion, there's people from all over the world. And what happens when you get people from all over the world together? They bring their idolatry, they bring their sin, they bring their economy, they bring all of the things that are evil, and it's all centered here in Corinth. And so in a lot of ways, the ancient city of Corinth was kind of like a combination between New York City, and Las Vegas. That's how you should think of who these people are. The city of Corinth was known for such sins that it would have been it would be actually inappropriate for us to talk about them in polite company. These are some of the most unlikely people to be God's people. And as Paul sits back and thinks about how in the world did a church spring up here? How in the world does God find his people amongst a people like this? He knows it's owing to one thing, and it's not Corinth. It's owing to the grace of God. And so he starts this section by saying, I thank God whenever I think of you. I thank God for the grace of God that is obviously at work among you. That's, that's where he starts. And it only makes sense that he'd start there, because at every point the Corinthians are God's people because of grace. Their salvation's entirely of grace. We know their salvation is entirely of grace because at every point, that's how Scripture talks about salvation. Romans 11, verses 5 and 6 say, "Even, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Before the Corinthians did anything good, before they did anything evil, before they even existed, there was an election according to, to grace that took place in the eternal council of God. And God chose these people for salvation. How? Because he was like, I need some Corinthians on my team. No, he did it by grace. You know, they weren't just elected by grace. They were also justified by grace because that's what Romans 3.24 tells us. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But they weren't just elected by grace, and they weren't just justified by grace. They are also being sanctified by grace. That's what Titus 2, 11 and 12 tell us. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, doing what? What is the grace of God doing in the lives and hearts of God's people? Here's what Titus tells us it's doing. It's teaching us. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We also know the Corinthians are going to be glorified how? By grace, right? So they're chosen in eternity past by grace, they're justified experientially in time by grace, they're being sanctified by grace, and their salvation will reach its consummation at the return of Christ by grace. Romans 8:30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Who glorifies them in the end? Who glorifies us in the end? We don't get glorified by works. We don't get glorified by self-effort. We don't get glorified by anything in, about, or because of us. We get glorified by God because of grace. The Corinthians don't deserve to be saved. You and I don't deserve to be saved. They haven't earned their salvation. There's nothing in them or about them that would make them stand out for salvation. They get saved because and only because of grace. And so because their salvation is in every way and at every point a salvation of grace, Paul starts his letter by saying, when I think of you, I think of grace. I have no other explanation for who you are. Oh, you're you're still a hot mess. But when I look at you, there's there's evidence that the saving grace of God is clearly there in the church at Corinth. And it makes me happy, so happy that I come back and I thank God for it. Now, if that's true of the Corinthians, and it is, isn't that also true of all of God's people? But as we think about who we are as God's people, as you think about the Christians around you, who are we? We're not who we are because of us. We're who we are because of grace. Because in eternity past, God graciously chose to love us. In the past, God graciously chose to send his son into the world to redeem us. To live vicariously a perfect, righteous, sinless life in my place. To lay down his life on a cross in my place. To take the wrath of God that I deserve in my place. He didn't do that because I deserved it. He is sanctifying me entirely of grace. He will one day glorify me entirely of grace, which means that we, as we think about what it means for me to be a Christian, what it means for you to be a Christian, we are debtors of grace. And we have nothing to do but turn around like Paul and praise God for his work. And then what Paul does in the rest of this long sentence as he shows the Corinthians several aspects of grace that cause them to be thankful. The first aspect of grace is in verse 4, where it tells us it is by Jesus Christ. The phrase by Jesus Christ is what's grammatically called a locative of sphere. And, and what that means is it's showing us that grace is received in the sphere in, the, in relationship to Jesus Christ, in the atmosphere of Christ, in our experience with Christ, around Christ. In theological terms, we would say it's in our union with Christ. And Paul's telling us that while, while grace does come from every member of the Trinity, God the Father is gracious, the Holy Spirit is gracious, Jesus is gracious, all three members of the Trinity are gracious. This is a divine attribute that's true of every person of the Trinity. But what Paul's doing is he's saying that the grace of God is, is actually mediated to us in our relationship with, in our union with Jesus. And so it's not simply grace. Apart from Christ, God is gracious, and that's an attribute of his, but how do we experience it? We experience it in and only in our union with Christ. And that's why John 1, verses 14 and 17 say, the word Christ became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is how God mediates, how he funnels his grace to us. And Apart from Christ, apart from Christ coming into the world, apart from Christ dying on the cross, apart from Christ's perfect, sinless, righteous life, Apart from the entire work of Christ, there is no reception of saving grace for God's people. So how do we receive saving grace? We receive it in and only in our union with our relationship with Jesus. One of the things the grace of God has done for the Corinthians is in verse 5. And it says, they were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge. So in verse 5, Paul's thanking God that the Corinthians have been enriched by the grace of God in two areas, utterance and knowledge. And the word utterance and knowledge are really important as you work through the book of 1 Corinthians. The word for utterance is the Greek word logos. It means word. It means speech. And and the other one is gnosis, knowledge or wisdom. So Paul's thanking God that, that he has given the Corinthians the ability to know, to understand, to comprehend spiritual truths, which means they're... Their apprehension and reception of spiritual truths is a work of God's grace. But not only that, he's also thanking God that they have understood spiritual truths, but that they're also able to speak spiritual truths. They're able to communicate the truth of God to other people. Maybe it's through teaching, maybe it's preaching, discipleship, evangelism. In some way, they're able to understand the words of God and then to communicate them in a beneficial way to other people. These aren't the only two gifts that Paul that, that Paul recognizes God has given the Corinthians. But there's actually a reason in the in the argument of 1 Corinthians, there's a reason he highlights these two here. In, verse, in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Paul comes back to these two gifts and listen to what he says. Even though I speak, even though I logos with the word or with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, if I have not love, I am nothing. So In 1 Corinthians, later in chapter 13, we know the Corinthians are taking these gifts, the gifts of speech, the gifts of wisdom, and they're actually not using them as they should, as something that's a grace. They're using them as a means of self-promotion. They're like, dude, I got wisdom. You should check me out. Yeah, but I have utterance. I can prophesy. I can speak in tongues. I have the ability to craft words and to speak like amazing things for God. And and rather than, than boasting in the Lord as if he gives them those things by grace, they're boasting in themselves. And so Paul starts at the outset of his letter, not by thanking God for the abuses of these gifts. That's not what he's doing. But For the gift themselves. And as he's thanking God for these gifts, he's actually very subtly starting even here to correct some of the problems in Corinth. He's reminding them, your your wisdom, your utterance, your speech, your, your spiritual gifts that you have are not all about you. They're gifts that God has given you. They're graces he has bestowed on you. And here's what they do in my heart, Paul says, they make me thankful. They don't make me amazed and impressed with you. They make me look at God and say, your grace is awesome. Paul says the same thing in Romans 12, verses 1 through 8, where he says, For I say through the grace of God given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we all have many members in one body, But all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are all one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts that differ from one another, according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Of ministry, let us use it in our ministry. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. What's Paul saying in Romans 12? He's saying that God has given every one of his people a spiritual gift, but he's also graciously given them the faith that they need to exercise that spiritual gift. So what's the conclusion Paul makes in in Romans 12? It's don't think too highly of yourself. The gift, the grace, the faith, everything about your spiritual gift is actually not about you. It's something God has given you, and he's the one you should think highly of. So we have to ask, what about us? Think about some of the spiritual gifts that are represented even tonight here. Some of you have the, the spiritual gift of taking God's word and just drawing truth out of it, like over and over and over and over again to where what, what most of us would breeze over and be like, that's a really good verse. You're just sucking truth out of it and, and making it come alive. And, and you have incredible insights into the word of God. Some of you have the ability, by God's grace, to take the truths of the Bible and to come to hurting people and to minister to them in a way that really does help them. Some of you have the gifts of service, and you're able somehow to take 50 hours of serving God's people and to somehow cram it into a 24-hour period of time. God has given each and every one of his people some kinds of spiritual gifts, and the question that this passage raises from us is, what do we do about them? Do we boast in ourselves and think, look how amazing I am in my insights in the Word? (laughs) Check out how good I am at counseling and helping people. Or do we do what Paul does and do we recognize that our spiritual gifts are a grace? There's something God has given us. He's bestowed them on us. Therefore, we cannot boast in ourselves, but we have to boast in our gifting in Him. The next aspect of God's grace that Paul highlights is in verse 6. And he says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. In verse 6, Paul's thanking God for the Corinthians that God showed the grace that God showed them when God confirmed Paul's testimony about Jesus to them. And so what does that mean? What does it mean that God confirmed Paul's testimony about Jesus to them? It means that when Paul was preaching at Corinth, when Paul was sharing the gospel with the Corinthians, there was something else going on. God's spirit was actually working in the lives and in the hearts of God's people, taking the truth of what Paul was saying and confirming it to them, making it believable to them, opening their eyes, opening their hearts, opening up their spiritual receptors so that they did not reject it as foolishness, but so that they embraced it as life. The Holy Spirit was working through Paul's preaching to to take the truths of the gospel and to give them faith. In other words, Paul's taking the Corinthians back to the day of their salvation, the moment they were converted. And he's showing them that their very act of belief, their reception of the truths of the gospel was not because of them. They can't even boast in that. They didn't believe in Christ because they were smart enough. We looked this morning in 1 Corinthians 1, um, 26 and 27, 28 and 29 this morning, where Paul says, not many of you were wise. Consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to the world standards. They can't even boast in their own spiritual receptivity. They believed because and only because the grace of God was operative in the preaching of the word and confirming the truth of the word to their barren hearts. Albert Barnes writes, the gospel, it is here called the testimony of Christ. It was proved to be divine by the miraculous attestation of the Holy Spirit. It was confirmed or made certain to their souls by the agency of the Holy Spirit, sealing it to their hearts. So Paul comes and he thanks God that the gospel was confirmed to them. That Paul's message to the Corinthians was, was made believable, was was actually faith-producing, because Paul knows that that's the only place faith comes from. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all of this is a work of God. alone. Philippians 1.29 actually says the same thing. It just says it more clearly when it says, For to you it has been granted. There's It's actually the same word that's used here. It's graced. It's been graced to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, But also to suffer for his name's sake. Why does anyone believe because it's been graced to them? And that's what Paul means when he says that the work or that his message has been received and confirmed in their hearts by God. So why does anyone believe in Christ? Why do you believe in Christ? We'd say I believe in Christ because I believe in Christ. And Paul would actually say, well, that's true, but there's something else behind the scenes. You believe in Christ because the gracious spirit of God was confirming the gospel to you and making you believe. And then in verse 7, Paul highlights another aspect of God's grace. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have some of the more modern translations of verse 7, some of the more modern translations do you a disservice in verse seven, and they actually add the word spiritual in front of the word gift. If you have that, you'll notice the word spiritual is in italics. It's in italics because that means it's a word that the translators added, hoping it would be helpful to us. I don't think it's actually helpful to us here. The reason I think that's a disfavor to us is because the word gift, the Greek word that gets used here, is the Greek word charisma. It can be translated one of two ways. It can be translated gift. That's how most translations take it. And so some translations put the word spiritual in front of it, making us think what? That he's talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about tongues and prophecy and generosity and those kinds of things. Or it can also be translated simply as grace. Because at the end of the day, even spiritual gifts are graces. I don't think Paul's talking about spiritual gifts the way we normally think about them. I think Paul's talking about an all-encompassing understanding of every kind of grace that the Corinthians have needed, need presently, and will need. The reason I think that is because in verse 7, these gifts, these graces, are things that they will need as they are waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is clearly a reference to the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And Paul's telling us that, that that in the meantime, in the dash between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, every grace you need for that period of time, every gift you need, everything that God could give you that you could possibly need, he is giving you. You come short in no grace. That's what he's saying. So when Paul tells us you come short in no grace, I take that to mean there is no grace that God has that he is withholding from his people. There is no grace that you need, that I need as we live the Christian life waiting for the return of Christ. There is nothing we need that God is stingily holding in heaven being like, "Sorry. This one's mine." Paul tells us there isn't. We come short in no grace. We come short in nothing. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we need grace to resist temptation? Absolutely. Do we need grace tomorrow morning when we get a phone call and find out our world just came tumbling down because someone we know has died? Do we need grace to fight for joy in that moment? Do, do we need grace to, to endure until the end and to continue believing in a hostile world where absolutely everything around us is opposed to our faith? And the answer is absolutely do we need grace at the final moments of our life in our deepest, darkest moment of pain as we're about to cross the river into glory? Do we need grace there? And the answer is absolutely. And Paul's telling us there's no grace we need that God is not giving us. There's no grace you need that God is withholding from you. You come short in no grace. There's another aspect of God's grace that's mentioned in verse 8. Notice in verse 8 who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to to understand verse eight, you have to remember what he just said in verse seven. So in verse seven, he introduces us to this idea of the day of the Lord, the return of Christ. And in verse eight, he recognizes that as soon as he, he he brings our mind to the return of Christ, he knows that actually has done something in us. Because what is the day of the Lord? What is the day when the Lord returns? It's actually a day of two things. It's a day of salvation, but it's also a day of judgment. So the return of Christ that's introduced in verse 7 raises the question, okay, so if Christ is going to return, and if he's going to give me every grace I need between now and then, how in the world do I know that if I continue battling sin between now and then, if I continue to struggle with that that Roman 7 remaining flesh, how do I know that at the return of Christ it will go well with me? How do I know in 50 years from now when Christ returns, all the grace that he's shown me will not be null and void because of my remaining unfaithfulness? I wonder if for some of you that's your greatest fear. I wonder if for some of you your greatest fear is that, oh, you've been saved by grace in the past. And maybe you're even today being sanctified by grace. But what if? What if tomorrow? What if in 20 years? What if next month you so sin that you make all the grace that God has given you absolutely null and void? And while you may have received grace in the past, what about that? And then to think there's a day of judgment. I mean, I know we're saved by grace, but don't I need to do enough good works? Don't I need to perform well enough to maintain that grace? We're not Mormons. We don't have Moroni 1032 in our Bibles that we're saved by grace after all that we can do. We are saved by grace. And so what Paul's doing is he's telling us that, that oh, yeah, I've introduced the day of the Lord. I've introduced this day of judgment. And I know in your hearts, I've raised the question: can I lose my salvation? Can I sin often enough? Can I sin heinously enough to lose my salvation so it will not go well with me on that day? And to answer those fears, Paul tells us that he knows he's raised in our hearts. He's telling us in verse 8: the grace of God isn't just working in the, in the past, it's not just working in the present. The grace of God is actually working 25 hours a day to confirm you, to establish you, to strengthen you, and to bring you to that day so that you will be blameless on the day of Christ. Notice the word end in verse 8. The word end in verse 8 is the Greek word telos. and It doesn't mean end like the final part of a period of time. So if you go home and watch a movie tonight, at the end of the movie, it'll say the end. What does that mean? It means that the movie's over. The period of time from when it started to the period of time when it is over that duration of time has passed. That's not the word Paul uses here. Here it's a word that means the goal, the destination, the purpose. So Paul's saying that God's grace is working in us to the end, to the goal, for the purpose of confirming us and making us blameless when Christ returns. Now, if your heart is anything like mine, I guarantee it is then you read that word blameless and you just like slam on the brakes of your mind and you go, hold on a second. In Greek is the word blameless and blame so close that maybe Paul's pen like splattered a blot of ink and somehow blamed became blameless on accident. And it's just gotten translated throughout the ages that way. How in the world can Paul say that God's grace is working in our hearts to preserve us? guys like you, guys like me, how in the world can he say the grace of God is actually preserving us to the end, to the goal that on the day of the Lord, we will be blameless when God judges us. There will be no accusation brought against me on that day. Blameless? Really, Paul? Is that what you mean? Do you really mean that when Christ returns and I stand before him in judgment, he will look at me and say, I have no accusations against you. There's no blame that anyone can bring against you that will stick. And the answer is absolutely that's what Paul's teaching us. He's actually teaching us the the Christian doctrine of justification. The Christian doctrine of justification answers the question, how can sinful people like us ever be considered blameless and acceptable in the presence of God? And the Bible's answer to that question is that we can be considered blameless in the eyes of God Because and only because of Christ. Because for for anyone to be received in God's presence, they have to be blameless. God is so pure and so holy, he will not even look on us in our sin. So how can we be blameless? That's exactly why Christ came into the world. So so Christ comes into the world and he represents us in two different ways. First, he represents us for the entirety of, of his life And what does he do? Does he do what we have done? Does he do what every person before him has done? Does he fail to keep the law of God? Does he trample the law of God? Does he blaspheme his father? Does he break the laws of God? Absolutely not. He lives a blameless life. This is the one that the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God's never said that about me. God's never said that about you apart from Christ. God says that about and only about Christ, and what does Christ do with his perfect life why what's the the life of Christ all about? Oh, he is God for sure he did those things because they were right, He did them because they were because he's God, but more than that he did those as a man. that's why he had to come into the world. He did those as our representative, as our second Adam who represents all of his human race so that he can take this perfect, awesome, sinless life in exact conformity to the will of God that he has lived, and he can then give it to us and clothe us in it like something we wear on judgment day. That's how you can be blameless. But he did something else too, didn't he? Because the doctrine of justification doesn't just answer the problem of our lack of righteousness. It also answers the question of, How in the world do I deal with the sins that I've already committed? And Christ represents me there, too. He represents you there, too. Because at the end of that 33-year life, he then, so he lives his perfect, righteous life to give to us. But then at the end of his life, he takes my sin and my sorrow and he makes them his very own. He puts my sin on himself and he goes to a cross and he suffers in my place. He makes the payment for my sin. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Paul can say that God's grace will keep you blameless until the day of Christ, and you will stand on that day, just as Paul stands, not having a righteousness of your own that comes through the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith as you are united to Christ, and you receive everything that He is and has. You will stand blameless, not because you are personally blameless, because you're not. You will stand blameless the same way anyone stands blameless, because you stand in Christ. Romans eight thirty three and thirty four also talks about this and says, "Who will bring a charge against God's elect?" And I'm like, me. My conscience is like jumping up and down, screaming, "I will." Here's what God's answer is. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even right now at the right hand of God, always making intercession for us. This is actually really practical for us because Paul is teaching us that God's grace is so at work in the lives and hearts of God's people that for everyone who has truly received saving faith, they will also receive persevering faith. They will receive persevering grace, and they will be kept up into the very end, believing in Christ, clothed in Christ, in union with Christ. And it's all from eternity past to eternity future. It's entirely of grace, which means it can never be lost. I wonder if you lack assurance today in the Christian life. And maybe you lack assurance because you're constantly evaluating your your Christianity off of how you did today, off of how you did yesterday, off of how you'll do tomorrow. And so really, we think about our standing before God and our blamelessness based on our performance. And so today I'm doing awesome. It's Sunday, right? I mean, I've probably only sinned like 6,000 times today. I'm doing pretty good. Today I feel blameless, but what do I do tomorrow? Well, tomorrow I don't live off of the high of today. and I come crashing down and it's 8,000 sins tomorrow. And really, I think about my standing before God the same way a nerdy high school girl thinks about her relationship with the high school quarterback. We grab a flower and we go, he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And the reality is we can come to a passage like 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9, and we can say, he loves me. Because he doesn't love me based on me. He loves me based on grace. And the same God who showed me grace in eternity past when he chose me. The same God who showed me grace 25 years ago when he justified me. The same God who showed me grace when he sent his son into the world to live a perfect, sinless, righteous life in my place. The same God who showed me grace when he sent his son to the cross to bear my sins. That's the same God that gives me grace today. That's the same God that will give me grace tomorrow. That's the same God that in 60 years, as I'm gurgling for my last breath, will give me grace. That's the same God that will look on me on the day when Christ returns and will say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Why? Because I'm good and faithful? Hardly but because of grace. And so quit looking at yourself. There's times for spiritual reflection. There's times to evaluate whether we're growing and progressing. But at the end of the day, our assurance is not rooted in us. Our assurance is rooted in grace. So One of the songs we sing at our church, maybe you sing it here, the children of the Heavenly Father has this line, and we'll close with this. Though he giveth or he taketh, God his children never forsake. His the loving purpose solely to preserve them pure and holy. Let's pray. Father, we love your grace. We love your grace because it's our only hope. We are not blameless. We are not righteous. We are not holy. Lord, we are wholly unrighteous and we are wholly unholy. But Lord, because of your grace, you have chosen to unite us to Christ by a faith that you have created. By your grace, you will cause that work to continue, to endure, to grow, to persevere, to the goal that we will be blameless in Christ. And Lord, until that day, I pray that you will get increasingly give us hearts like you've given the Apostle Paul to simply look back at you and thank you and praise you for grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.